while you're being seated and uh, our third through fifth grade is exiting, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. It's great to see everybody this morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. Uh, we're just really glad that you've taken the time to join us today. Uh, we're going to focus our attention now on God's Word. And so hopefully you've grabbed your Bible or your device or whatever you're using to follow along and made your way to Luke chapter 12. In a moment, I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 13 down through verses 21 as we continue our series, The Storyteller, looking at parables of Jesus, different parables of Jesus, memorable parables of, parables of Jesus, and seeing what they can say to us about living a gospel-centered life. So Luke chapter 12, let's calm ourselves, listen, attune our hearts and ears to what God's word has to say. Beginning in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the, the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich. Toward God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word in, in a, this passage as we look at a particularly convicting topic. Lord, we pray that you would use the light of your word to shine on our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would shine in our hearts in a way that reveals, Lord, the darkness and the need for us to be rich in you. God, I pray that you would bring us to a place of conviction and abundance in you where we would be rich in good works. And Lord, that our greatest joy and treasure would be found in walking in obedience and fellowship with you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I was thinking about this. Obviously, we're going to talk about the topic of wealth and money today. And uh, hopefully that makes you nervous. Uh, but I was, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to try to find some statistics a little bit about how likely it is for, uh, you to win the lottery and, um, actually things that are more likely to happen to you than winning the lottery. I thought you might like to know some of the things that are more likely to happen to you than winning the lottery. The first one was death by vending machine. These are all things I found statistically proven on the internet, and we know that everything on the internet is true. 
One in 112 million chance to die in a death by vending machine. You have a 1 in 25 million chance in dying in an airline-related terrorist attack, which it's been a long time since we've had one of those, if you really think about it. You have more of a chance than that, than winning the lottery. Uh, you have a higher chance, 1 in 15 million, of having quadruplets than you do in winning the lottery. I thought this one was interesting. You have a uh, 1 in 10 million odds at becoming president, which is higher than your chance of winning the lottery. There's all a bunch of other things on here. Dying from a bee, hornet, or wasp thing is more likely than winning the lottery. And this one troubled me a little bit, but dying from being left-handed. Where are my left-handers at? Yeah, see, they're raising their left hand. It's a club. You're not in it. It's all right. Yeah. One in 4.4 million chance of dying as a result of this wicked world that is primarily right-handed. You have a better chance of becoming a movie star? Dying as a result of flesh-eating bacteria? Getting struck by lightning? I mean, just a few weeks ago, two, that happened in D.C. Dying in a bathtub? Dying in an on-the-job accident? This one I couldn't really believe, but it said dying in an asteroid apocalypse. You have a better chance of that. Despite the odds, according to an article from journalist Chris Isidore at CNN, Americans spend $70.15 billion on lottery tickets every year. $70 billion for chances that are less likely than dying by vending machine every year. It's a $70 billion industry more than on sports tickets, books, video games, movie box office tickets, or music combined. $70 billion. Old statistic, probably five years old. But, but it, it, it underscores something. We should probably just admit it. In general, we have a temptation to love money. We love money. It can't buy love. It can't buy virtue. It can't buy purpose. But we love her anyway. You see, where love, virtue, and purpose rule, money becomes a powerful servant. It certainly is not the uh, teaching of this text that money itself is a cruel evil that we should flee from. Because it's where, where we find love and virtue and purpose abounding, it's a powerful servant. But where they are absent, it becomes a vicious master. Absent love and virtue and purpose, money is a vicious master. So Jesus is concerned to teach his disciples about the dangers of greed. You'll notice in this passage, Jesus warned them specifically using the word covetousness. And here uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word for covetousness and the Greek word for greed are one in the same. They can be used interchangeably. Primarily, as Jesus is talking about avoiding covetousness, it's a desire for more that is so abundant that it usurps all other things. It's greed. 
It's the ongoing desire for more and never being content. He warns us about greed. And so the main point of this parable and the main point of our sermon this morning is this. That we guard ourselves from greed by being rich toward God. You know, maybe you're saying, well, how do I guard myself from this temptation that Jesus is warning against? If we have the danger of falling into a trap of loving money, if as the scripture reading that we read earlier in the service uh, tells us, we have to be warned that we need to flee a love of money and flee greed in a way that is serious and committed, then how do we guard ourselves? How do we know? in one of the wealthiest counties, in one of the wealthiest countries of the world, whether we found just an easy way to excuse our greed and gather abundance for ourselves? It's an important question, isn't it? One that we particularly need to answer? I mean, there's no topic like this that is more aimed at us than anyone in the world out of Jesus' disciples. But the main point of this passage is that it actually helps us know and learn how to take up a way of life that guards us against greed by becoming rich toward God. And so this is, this is kind of what we see. And this passage breaks apart in three parts. Jesus introduces us in this context of a conversation. And then we see he tells this parable. And then he gives us a final instruction about what we can do to kind of bring this main point home that we guard ourselves from greed by being rich toward God. But the first thing that we see is that everyone must be on guard against greed. Verses 13 through 15 at the beginning, in the context of this conversation, it shows us that greed is not just a problem of the wealthy, it's a problem that everyone must be on guard against. And so everyone must be on guard against greed. The wide danger of greed, or to use the term from the Ten Commandments, covetousness, is seen in the context of the parable where Jesus has this conversation. Let's look closely at the setup in verses 13 through 15. In the text... If you look, the parable is given to us as a part of a conversation that Jesus has with somebody who interrupts his Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you have to have some gall to interrupt Jesus in his, during his most famous sermon, right? Well, that's what's happening here. Jesus is doing this. He's teaching. And we can presume from Luke's arrangement in, of the story that it's in this setting in which Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount and the same content is here in the Gospel of Luke for us arranged. He's dropping spiritual wisdom, and this guy has only one thing in his mind. This is my chance to leverage this spiritual leader to get what I really want. And so this man interrupts, and he says, Teacher, you get the sense he's calling out, Teacher, tell my brother. That's powerful command. I mean, you notice how he's commanding Jesus to do something? Every time that's going on in the scripture, it's a danger. Whenever we are instructing Jesus, we're in the wrong seat. And then you see this. Brother, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Here is a guy who is concerned about practical things, right? This is, a, this is a pragmatic dude. Like, you know, he's got this chance, this influential teacher, get his attention, come to my aid. I want this. Well, whatever, notice what is really happening, though. Whatever the details of this dispute maybe he's the younger brother 
and the older brothers not dividing up things properly. Maybe the father guaranteed more and there's a dispute over the details of how much he should get as a part of his inheritance. Regardless of the details, what is happening here is the man is seeking to co-opt the authority of Jesus to fulfill his own lust for possession. You see, what he wants to do is co-opt the authority of Jesus to fulfill his own lust for possession. Before we run on too quickly, so much of what constitutes religion in our country (laughs) is a basic desire to co-opt God to give us what we want. So much of what we often do in pursuing God is to get ourselves in God's good graces so ultimately we can pull on his purse strings when we need it. This is what the guy's doing. Age-old problem, right? He's not doing anything that we should find too surprising. Jesus resists the power move. That's, that's what's striking about the passage. And he forces the man to ponder the question in verse 14. Verse 14, if you look at it, he, Jesus answers and says to him, Man... Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, standing here, that seems like an obviously crazy question for Jesus to ask him. You're Jesus. I mean, why aren't you the judge and arbitrator? You are the second person of the Trinity. You are God's son. But, of course, in this context, in the time of the conversation, that isn't abundantly clear. Jesus is a growing teacher who is, who is beginning to reveal who he is. And... Uh, And so he he uses this opportunity to reshape the question. Think about what he says. If the man answers Jesus' question and says, nobody did, then the conversation's over, right? But the likely answer would be, well, God did. Then actually he shouldn't be the, the one who's commanding. He ought to be listening because if God made Jesus the arbitrator, he might want to come and say, Jesus, what do I do about this situation? What should I care about? most distinctly in life. And and, and you see, that is the heart of greed that's going on here. The heart of greed, it tempts us into placing our concern on reckoning with the wrong things. (laughs) You know, what Jesus is going to show him is that right now you are reckoning with this, this situation in your life, and what you haven't reckoned with is your lust for more your desire for more, your your greed for possessions that won't even allow you to ask whether you have any wealth towards God and won't allow you to ask whether you're ready, ready for God to reckon with you. You see, Jesus always says, before I do any reckoning between one another, all of us need to reckon with God. And so, so you see that going on here. Jesus says, he, he, he He's challenging this man who wants to reckon with the near term to start to think about eternity. So Jesus makes it clear that what is at work here is the danger of greed. Greed busies its 
way, busts its way into every situation. This is the idea. That, that situations that don't look like greed, greed has its way of busting into our situation. When you're not particularly set out on being greedy or covetousness, it is coming for you. And so he says we have to guard ourselves against all sorts of things. You only guard yourself against something that is actively coming after you. And so he says, guard yourselves against all sorts of covetousness. So Jesus says, take care and guard yourselves against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And this is just the setup to the conversation, right? So what's his point? Well, listen, greed is not merely a rich person's problem or a poor person's problem. It's an attitude toward life that pursues abundance of possessions as its goal, as a master priority, whether you have much or little. You see, it's possible to be greedy with a little, and it's possibly possible to be greedy with much. Jesus is showing that here we have somebody who, is, who sees himself as lacking, who wants Jesus to give him more. But in the story he'll tell in the parable, we see somebody who has abundance, who doesn't do the right thing with it. Both of their problems are the same. It's greed. So whether you are lacking or whether you have abundance, greed may be at work in the way that you relate to possessions, relate to your money, and relate to your future. All of us have to guard against all sorts of covetousness. And so this is a parable about a guy who has too much told to a guy who thinks he has too little. And they are narrowly focused, both of them in life, on gathering wealth to themselves. So they need to discover what life is really about. So Jesus thinks greed or covetousness is a danger for you then and for me, no matter where you're at and what you have. And it comes in many shapes and sizes. And it has to be guarded against like an invader if we're going to focus our life on what really matters. You see, greed manifests itself in a lot of different ways that are more subtle than just an overt lust for money that you might look at your life and say, I don't have that. You see, greed can manifest itself in spending money that could be used for some good purpose on frivolous get-rich-quick schemes. Things that have unlikely odds. It can manifest itself in racking up large amounts of consumer debt that put you at risk of caring for your personal responsibilities in the future. You know, it can also manifest itself in the disciplined gathering and protecting of as much of your income as possible so that you get to the point where you have no needs left. That could be greed. And you can live purposeless, self-centered comfort for as long as possible. Greed can manifest itself in a so-called pastor promising people that they will receive an abundant financial blessing if they make a seed gift to their ministry. It can also manifest in giving a seed gift to a ministry because you really want an abundant financial blessing. It can manifest itself in believing that once you reach a certain point, you will start doing more for others, but you never get, to get around to it. It can manifest itself in gathering to yourself a greater and greater number of responsibilities and work hours to keep up a lifestyle that you are not even sure you want or honors God. You see, greed is subtle. 
It's got all sorts of ways that it invades our lives and reorganizes us around the task of acquiring abundance of possessions. And so Jesus says, guard yourselves against all covetousness. Which brings us to the parable, where he shows us that greed is exposed by what we do with abundance. So the the first thing is all of us need to guard against greed in all sorts of ways. But the second thing that he does then is he puts us in a parable and he says, what if you got more? (laughs) What will happen? What will you do with it if you become a person who has incredible abundance? Well, Jesus shows us that greed is exposed by what we do with abundance. The parable shifts us then from the man asking Jesus to get him more stuff to a guy who has to deal with an abundance of wealth. It's clear there's nothing wrong with abundance. Especially in an agricultural society, nobody would have thought of abundance as a bad thing, and the Jewish listeners in particular would have heard it as a blessing from God. But the issue Jesus is showing is what the man decides to do and why it's an error. What the man decides to do when he gets abundance. Now, just one thing I want to point out to you even, that really helps you understand, because I think there's a chance that every one of you are thinking, I just want to be a good steward for the future. And uh, so I'm not going to listen to this. I'm going to kind of pack out. <laughs> and I know I'm using my abundance to make sure that I'm being responsible for the future. I'm doing this. It, but, but listen, this guy's rich. It says it at the beginning. Before the, abund- the continued abundance come to him, comes to him, it actually says that he's rich. Do you notice that? It's a rich man who has a year of abundance. And that abundance finally and clearly reveals what's really at the heart of who he is. And so, you know, the, this, this is a different focus of attention. So if we look, at, it says in verse 16, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully so here's a man who's got an abundance we're not there's no reason to judge him for being rich or wealthy but now he has a plentiful year and and so the issue jesus shows us is what the man decides to do with it is is a total error and it's an example of greed so notice some of the details Let, let me just show you how jesus sets this story up in the text Notice that the word I is the most prominent word in verses 17 through 19. You might count it in your, uh, in your translation. Depending on what translation you have, it either appears five or six times. I is the dominant word. Jesus does that on purpose. He, wa- he wants us to get a sense of what drives this person. An incredibly self-centered view of the world. So you start in verse 17. And it says, when, get, when this plentiful year comes, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. The dominant subject is himself. The dominant subject of his life is himself. The dominant object of his possessions is himself. This is a man who has turned in on himself. He's only concerned with his future. Notice there's no mention of anyone else in his life. 
It's him. The essence of sin is that we live a life turned in on ourselves and have narrower and narrower concerns as time moves on versus having an ever-broadening concern which love pictures for others and their flourishing. You see, the love of God is an ever-expanding love that where the abundance overflows to the joy of more people. And love does that. And when we imitate God, what, what happens is our world becomes larger, not smaller. And sin has a way of narrowing our world until we're the only one left in it that matters. And so that's what happens with greed. We see that something that should have been an opportunity for this man to expand his world and bless other people and cause others to flourish. The only person in the conversation is himself. So, you see first the word I is the most prominent word in verses 17 to 19. And we see that when he has an abundance, he opts for bigger storage. So for those of you who are feeling a little concerned about your own approach to abundance, let's be clear. This man had some storage, and it got full, all right? It was likely the sort of storage that would be a wise protection for future responsibilities that he might have to concern himself with. But the only thought he has related to his, his abundance is, I need more storage. I need more storage. Interestingly, in the U.S., I don't know if you know this, but... In the, in the U.S., you can fit every person in the country under the roof of a self-storage center. A large garage. And the suburbs have the highest percentage of storage units. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with having a storage unit, of course, and there are lots of different reasons we have them. Right? There's nothing inherently wrong, but I mean, shouldn't it give us American suburbanites a pause that a prominent villain in one of Jesus' memorable stories is a guy who has so much stuff that he has to build a larger storage unit. Shouldn't it slow us down to think a little bit? Like, what are we doing? What might we do with this abundance that sits in the darkness that we never see for massive amounts of time in our life? And I, Listen, I get all the reasons why we have storage. And again, there's nothing particularly sinful about it. But it could be a pointer to tell us a little bit about what we do with our abundance as we see a story about a man who failed to do the right thing with his abundance. We should at least lean in, don't you think, and listen closely to what Jesus is warning about? So we see this. He, he, he opts to build more storage as a rich man who has a year of abundance. The, poverty, the other thing we see is the poverty of his soul is clear by what he is aiming for. Jesus puts the real goal of this man's life on display. You see, he is using this moment of abundance in his life to purchase prolonged comfort. He's actually spending his abundance on something. He's spending it on his future. His future for ample years, as he describes it. And notice that it's his aim. When he has abundance, what does he aim it at? He aims that he would have ample years to say to his soul, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. See, this is the mission of his life, right? This is the captivating thing. This is the pursuit. If I could just relax, eat, drink, and be merry, I will have the things that really matter. I'll have the things that I really want. And now I can ensure that because this abundance is allowing me to do it. 
powerful picture, honestly, of so much of what makes up the modern American dream. And so he's aiming at this desire. And this abundance has bought him more years in his mind. His abundance was spent entirely to ensure his future ease. And I wonder how many of us are living there with him. The decisions we are making are for the idealistic future period of our life where we'll stop working and finally start living for what we really want to do. And we're aiming all of our accumulation at it, at that moment, in hopes that we can get there. And we've become unaware that God has a present mission for us and we've lost our way. This is what's happening in this passage. He's challenging us to rethink our present and not, not purchase with our present a future that really isn't secure. This is what he's urging us to consider. And the only time I can think of that God himself shows up in a parable, in any of the parables that we've studied all summer and the other parables that there's only one time that I can think of and I'm just looking that God himself, usually he shows up as like a, like a character that's like the father or the master or something like that. In this one, it's God. This is God shows up to make sure we don't miss that it's God that's speaking that says, fool. This is a foolish way to live. This is living as though I don't exist. And that you will always have time. <laughs> and, and you know, isn't this just like basic, basic, basic Christianity, right? That, that Jesus is reminding us, you don't know how much time you have. <laughs> we have no idea what God will entrust with us in regards to time. And to live like we are securing that future at all costs in our lives is to miss the purpose and mission of God and live like a fool. And God shows up to make sure we hear it from his voice. Today, this night, your soul will be required of you. That, that idea, what it means is you're going to come and you're going to give an account for your soul. An account for your soul. Uh, an accounting to God for what you did with your life. For what you did with what was entrusted to you. And he says this man has chosen foolishly. Partly he says that by saying, whose is all this stuff going to be? I'm going to get to redistribute that. Somebody else is going to have it, right? It's real practical. But Jesus comes at the end of the parable, and he says something important for us. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, this man... And us, if we do not heed the warning, he lived like a functional atheist who didn't believe the promise of God's kingdom or entrust himself to them as a primary good. That's what he was doing. He's a functional atheist. And I wonder how many of our futures are being planned out as though we are functional atheists. God has nothing to do with it as long as I can see. But I have the primary responsibility to do that. And he's not calling me in my present to anything but making that way secure. 
That's, that's just a disregard almost everything he instructs us about. So Jesus says that the cure to that, that the response to that is to aim your life at being rich toward God. He's contrasted. This is being rich toward ourselves. And he says the contrast of that is that we would aim our lives at being rich towards God. Jesus gives us a contrary vision to the one that the parable represents. He says we should aim our life at this wealth towards God. So, okay, what does it mean then to be rich towards God? Because it feels like if we could, if we, the, the answer to avoiding greed isn't just focusing on avoiding greed. It's that our life would be so wrapped up in some other pursuit that greed would be pressed out of it. You see that? That, that in the pursuit of what is really valuable, that, that money would come to play the right role in our life rather than a central one. Because in a greedy person's life and somebody who's covetous, money and wealth and accumulation plays the central role. But if we were to recenter ourselves on what matters and being rich towards God, all of a sudden money can get in the right place and become the servant that God intends it to be rather than the master. And so he teaches us in the rest of what follows how we can be rich towards God. It's kind of a challenging thing to answer, though, because it's easy for me to just say, hey, go be rich towards God. And you can leave with a lot of angst today and go, I don't really know what that means. I'm uncomfortable with how this makes me feel about money. Uh, I know I should feel a little convicted, uh, but I'm just going to keep trudging on and not examine my life. And I'm not really sure what all that spiritual talk of being rich towards God really is. And I was racking my brain. You can ask some of our staff this week. We did a little bit of a brainstorm. I was, uh, uh, you know, what does it mean to be rich toward God? We're like kind of bullet points and thinking about some of these ideas. What, what else does the Bible say about it? Uh, I emailed our elders. I was like, just answer this question for me. Help me kind of think about that just because I need some time to, to process stuff and other people are saying. And I was, because I don't want you to just have the sense like, oh, this is super vague. I'm not even sure. What, what it would look like. But what Jesus actually does immediately following the parable is lays out a pattern of life where he gives us some real clear instructions. And I'm just going to list what those are. I, wanted, I want you to see it. Now, um, we didn't read this as the part of our scripture reading, but from 22 through verse 34, Jesus tells us what it means to be rich toward God or how we can begin doing that. And so it may not be an exhaustive way, but it's some challenging things we need to do in our lives if we're going to build our life this way, and they run contrary to our natural instincts. And so the first one is we have to resist building a life that does not require us to trust God. We have to resist building a life that does not require us to trust God. If you look closely at verses 22 through 30, they contain familiar words about our, our Heavenly Father's concern for our basic welfare. This is the one where it says that he cares for the lilies of the field and arrays them. And he tells us, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and all these basic things of life because your Father in Heaven cares for you. And so in a way, he's saying those can't be your primary concerns. Resist building your life around securing what God already says he cares to give you. Resist building that. One of our elders, uh, Ryan Pugh, told me the story about a man named Tom Hemingway who at the 17-year mark in his military career felt called to leave his service in the military to be full-time with Officer's Christian Fellowship. 
Now, most of us in this room know what that means. Three years from retirement and all that comes with that and its financial benefits, but feeling the sense that God was calling him to act immediately. And so he did. Many people thought he was crazy not to just wait until 20 years for his retirement and then get on with what God had seemingly assigned him to do, what he was feeling compelled to do. The truth was, unknown to him and anyone else, he only had a few years left before the Lord called him home. But in those years, he used those years serving the Lord and making an impact for the kingdom. And we so often opt for purchasing security over trusting God when we have a clear mission. I do it all the time. As a pastor of this church, I've sat with people who had a sense they wanted to to do something, that God was calling them to some significant decision, and they've wrestled over trading that in to be able to purchase a sense of security. And it's hard. Listen, I I remember crossing that bridge as an 18-year-old young man, devoting myself to ministry and and realizing that there were certain things I wasn't going to be able to do to secure my future. But listen, you discover life out there. You discover life beyond the questions of what will I eat and drink. And you find that there's an abundance when we walk with God wherever he leads us. We have to resist building a life that does not require us to trust God day by day. And to be able to enter into the Lord's prayer that says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. So that's the first thing we see. He just makes it pretty clear in the rest of that section. That that is something worth resisting. He says, our over-concern in verse 28, he just cries out, Oh, you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink or be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things. You're a part of a different kingdom. So we resist building a life that does not require us to trust God. The second thing is, he tells us we need to have a clear, godly mission for our present and future. See, the man in the story had a mission. Jesus says there's a different mission. Verse 31, it says really clearly, seek his kingdom. The same idea appears in this similar section in Matthew and says seek first the kingdom of God. Here we see that the things of God become a priority to us when we seek first the kingdom of God. Seeking God's kingdom in this way that Jesus is describing has two components. The first one is we cultivate a genuine life with God. That costs us time, time that we can turn into other resources and spend on ourselves. But we're told that we're to cultivate, seeking the kingdom of God first is about cultivating our life with God as the highest priority. We take the time that we could spend securing our future of ease or engaging in it, and we devote it to knowing God through the genuine study of his word, to the fellowship of a local body of believers, to the engagement in genuine service with others who are walking in the kingdom of God. And it's costly. It costs time and energy and effort. But in doing so, we take hold of what's really life. And we press out the temptation of greed, and we find that there's more that makes our lives rich in the abundance of possessions. We come to trust it more. So so in one part, this seeking first means cultivating this genuine life with God. And then particularly, I mentioned this, but the other thing it does is it calls us to contribute to seeing his kingdom manifest through our lives. 
seeking first the kingdom means seeking that the kingdom would be manifest through us. That we would, be, we would be a people where God's spirit is at work showing his kingdom being born around us. Letting us being involved in that work. We offer ourselves and our lives to God to be used for purposes that allow others to cultivate a genuine life with God. As we mature, we not only want to have our relationship with God grow. We want to see the riches of a genuine life with God spring up all around us and in the life of others. So we... We cultivate important spiritual conversations with people. We create space in our lives to show hospitality to other believers who need support, who need growth. We serve in the mission of the gospel with others in our local church, near and far. We speak a word of gospel witness in the context of our lives to those who come in contact with us, and we ask the Lord to work. These sort of things, when we seek them, press into them, desire them, and prioritize them, these sort of things become important priorities. We become unconcerned with what they cost us. And it protects us against greed. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. The third one is the most powerful. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. I mean, just right here in the passage, you know, I was struck by how plain it is. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. I love how he, he doesn't like adjust it. He's like, when you get to X percentage or X amount of abundance, do this thing. Now, verse 33 may sound like a vow of poverty, but it doesn't say that we won't retain any possessions. It doesn't say that. He didn't say in this particular setting, sell everything you have and give everything. Then you become someone who can't be responsible for your own needs, right? Jesus isn't particularly saying that that's what to do. Um, That's not what this call is. But he's pointing us to the radical practice of generosity towards others. And, you know, what happens is the practice of generosity towards others in genuine need trains us to not trust in our own wealth and see the greater mission that God wants to connect us with when he gives us abundance. The point Jesus is making is that we should have a plan to be generous to those in need and even act that plan out at a genuine cost to ourselves. That if we look and we have abundance, one of the real options is liquidating the abundance for someone else's benefit. Jesus says plainly, sell your possessions and give to the needy. I I just wonder, when's the last time you did it when... I, you know, I'm preaching to the choir. When's the last time you just flat sold something that you have and gave it to someone who needed it? And where you just strategically were like, what do I have that I don't need, someone else does, even if it's still valuable to me? And I'm not going to try to get the most money out of it. I'm just going to give it to them. This is the sort of thing Jesus says would be normal of our discipleship when we're not greedy. heard the story recently of a guy who's been working with refugees, and he took a bunch of money out of his retirement account to purchase a house that some refugees he's been working with could live in. (laughs) Like, literally, just his retirement account. And this isn't a rich guy. This isn't a guy who's got massive abundance. He He just started unloading his retirement account to buy this house so refugees could live in it that he had come to care for. You may think it sounds foolish, but I would suggest he is rich toward God. This is what it looks like. 
doing things like this that run contrary to your future security in this life, but demonstrate that you believe that there's a next life is the only way to nurture genuine faith. Lastly, he says, be rich in good works. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6 gives the same instructions Jesus gives here. It tells us that there's an entirely other way to be rich. We make plans to fill our lives with God-honoring good works. You see, genuine service to others that flows out of our abundance connects us to the clear instruction of Jesus to love our neighbors. The antidote to greedy covetousness is to proactively scheme how our lives can be full of good works. Good works have a bad rap, I think, in some Christian circles because we are so clearly convinced and we've convinced ourselves rightly that they may, or we've convinced ourselves we need to avoid the idea that they make us worthy for God to receive us into heaven. And so, you know, good works, bad, faith, good. And, and, and in a sense, you know, we've got our doctrine right, but Jesus never intended us to not live lives where good works are abundant. He just doesn't want us to depend on them for our salvation or to think that they are born from within ourselves and not the Spirit of God. But then, as we are saved and rooted and grounded in our confidence that only God can save, and it's bubbling out of us and we have this abundance in God, he says, busy yourself doing good. Be rich in good works. The Apostle Paul says, in the words of Martin Luther, God may not need your good works, but your neighbor does. The truth is, through giving the abundance of your good works to your neighbors in life, Scheming to be rich in that sort of activity, you also give to yourself a perspective and freedom from possessions that you can gain no other way than by losing. Paul says that in doing so, it opens a doorway for us to take hold of that which is truly life. Be thoughtful and rich in your good works, and it will open the way for you to be rich toward God. Well, the alternative to everything I'm saying is to the last few strings we have in here. For many years, while we tell ourselves we're just being responsible stewards, never considering that God gave us abundance for a whole other purpose. And to be truthful, that lifestyle would make entirely good sense if Jesus had never risen from the dead. It'd be perfectly sensible to live that kind of life if Jesus is not risen from the dead. If Jesus had never risen from the dead, if this is our shot, we only have one life, and God doesn't rejoice in giving us his kingdom and abundance, and if there's no day when we'll be risen with Christ ourselves, and death and suffering are defeated, then we better get all we can now. For the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus became poor, for our sake, that he might bless us with the genuine, eternity-long riches of God's blessing. And if Jesus laid down the abundance of his life and suffered on our behalf to bring us to God, if Jesus has promised to make all things new and he rose from the grave as the demonstration of the power and certainty of his coming kingdom, we are living in an entirely different story and we have every reason to be rich toward God. So what do we do? believe this good news today. 
and we begin to work it out. We look at our lives and ask, is my life aligned with a competent belief in the risen Jesus and in the coming resurrection of the dead? Where I will rejoice for ages long because God delights in giving us his kingdom. And if that's so, what do I do with my abundance now? Let's pray. Jesus has shown us. Don't think each of us need to reckon with God. Reckon now before the day he calls to reckon with us. Some of us need to begin a relationship with him because our entire pursuit in life has been for our own desires and abundance. And we found it's not so good and miserable. And Jesus invites you to leave that, to trust in his provision for you. The deepest provision you ever needed, Jesus went ahead of you to give. When he purchased your redemption at the cross, your forgiveness and a relationship with God at the cross, so that if you would turn today and trust by faith, that God rejoices to forgive you and provide for your future and bring you into an eternity with him just out of the depths of his love. And he's already provided everything you need in Jesus. If you'll trust that today, he'll save you. He'll change you. He'll come into your life and begin to make you new and, and show you what it really means to be rich. Rich toward him. All of us, if you've been a Christian for a long time, we need to Figure out what it looks like for us to devote ourselves today to a life that is rich toward God. Not to get caught up in purchasing our future security. Not to devote ourselves to seeking our own accumulation. But we would seek first the kingdom of God, be rich in good works. And we would be people who wait for the coming resurrection where we'll rejoice. I ask you to bow your heads with me. Lord, Thank you today for your love for us. We pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring conviction to our hearts and lives, that you would stir us up to love and good works. God, that we would entrust ourselves to these words and believe them from the heart, Lord, and that would overflow into works of kindness and wealth toward you. That we would seek first the kingdom, that you would be exalted in Jesus' name.